We are in 1 Corinthians, and um, I've entitled it A Beautiful Mess because, uh, yes, that's the church. It is messy because we bring our, our human messiness into it, but it's beautiful because in the midst of our messiness, not in spite of our messiness, but actually through the gospel transforming our messiness, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ makes something beautiful. We've worked our way up to 1 Corinthians 3, and I'm just going to be taking the first four verses of 1 Corinthians 3 this week. Uh, before we go there, though, let's ask, uh, let's ask for the Holy Spirit's illumination and, and penetrating ministry. Uh, let's pray. God, you are the revealer, God. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us in your Son. We thank you that that's the clearest picture Lord, we thank you that you also reveal to us, you reveal yourself to us through your written word. We thank you for all that you have done to uh, make your word available to us today. We thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit that not only has inspired and preserved your word, but now as we read it, illuminates your word. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would do even more this morning, that Again, this is not just be an exercise in academic learning, but that your Holy Spirit would take the Word as a sword and pierce through into the parts of our lives, the way we think, the way we feel, uh, our wills, to do the work that you desire to do in each of us individually and in us collectively. So we offer ourselves up to you as your Spirit now works through your Word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We've worked our way up to 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, Let me just pick up and I will read beginning in verse 1 through verse 4. Brothers, Paul writes, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babes or as infants in Christ. I fed you milk, not solid food, because you were not able to receive it. In fact, you are still not able because you are still fleshly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and living like ordinary people? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? Let me ask you a question as we begin this morning. Are you growing? Are you maturing? I mean, I know we can all mark our birthdays, and we we can see our maturity happening or increasing by our chronological progression in life. And maybe if you work out and, you know, you are building your, your muscles, you see some maturing, you see some growth over time as you put in that effort where you work in your profession and your career, you you can measure how you're growing, how you're maturing uh, as you gain more experience and, and, and learn new skills and abilities over time. But what about spiritually? How do you know if you're growing spiritually? How do you know if you are maturing spiritually? Now, this isn't just an academic question. This isn't, e- this isn't even something that we ask so we can compare ourselves. I'm more mature than you are. This is a question that fleshes itself out in our relationships. Your degree, my degree of spiritual maturity or immaturity plays itself out in our marriages. It plays itself out in our families. It plays itself out in our families, in our, our friendships. 
your and my degree of spiritual maturity or immaturity plays itself out in our church. So it is a very, very relevant question, and it is, it is one that, that Paul touches on. Paul touches on it because, first of all, the Corinthians, people like us, they thought of themselves as spiritually mature. They thought of themselves as, as spiritual people. Look at a couple of the ways that Paul mentions this in chapter 1, verse 7. You do not lack any spiritual gift, he encourages them. Now, now, he meant that as genuine encouragement, but the reality is he's picking up on something they were proud of. They were proud that in their body, in their church, they, they seem among them all to manifest many spiritual gifts, and especially some of those that are, are the more uh, observable spiritual gifts, like, like tongues, we'll see as we get later into uh, speaking in tongues as we get later into Corinthians, as prophecy, as we'll see later in Corinthians. Verse, or chapter 2, verse 6, yet among the mature, or verse 15, the spiritual person. These are terms that Paul uses, but they're terms that the Corinthians claimed about themselves. So when they spoke about themselves to each other, and, and, and when they interacted with Paul, that's how they presented themselves. I, I'm mature. I'm, I'm a spiritual person. You know, I've been around Christians who who, who think they have a, a certain level of spiritual maturity, a higher level of spiritual maturity because they manifest certain spiritual gifts, especially some of the more visible ones. I've been around believers who look down on, on, on those like, like me who don't manifest those same gifts, and, and that's how people measure maturity. Is that how we measure spiritual growth? By what spiritual gifts we have and how we're exercising them? But I've also been around Christians who, who judged how mature someone was by how much doctrine they understood. I, I've been around people who, who measure it by whether you understand biblical prophecy and how interested you are in biblical prophecy. That's how they would measure your maturity. I've been around people who, who measure it by, by how into Reformed theology you are. And, and when, if you're really into Reformed theology, then you're really mature. And if you're not, and if you don't even know what that is, you're immature. That's, that's what I've picked up from some people that I have been around. Is that how we measure spiritual growth? Is that how we measure spiritual maturity? You see, the thing is, the Corinthians thought of themselves as spiritually mature, as spiritual people, and yet, Paul points out, the Corinthian church is divided, was divided. Uh, we saw this uh, back in chapter 1, but Paul comments on it again in chapter 11, verse 18. When you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. He, he comments on it here in our, our text today, verse 3 of chapter 3. There is envy or jealousy. There is strife or quarreling that is among you. So here are these people who think of themselves as spiritually mature, as spiritual people, and Paul contradicts their boast about their spiritual maturity. He shows them, and by the way, he's, he's showing us as well, he shows them that divisions, that factions, that rivalries, that strife, that quarreling, those aren't evidence of spiritual maturity. Those are actually evidences of spiritual immaturity. 
See, spiritual maturity is a topic that Paul taught a lot about. Uh, We see it all through his letters as well as the letters of the other apostles. Uh, Look at just the way he uses the term spiritual. In 1 Corinthians 2.15, we saw this last week, the spiritual person. And again, he's not talking about that in the sense that we use that in our culture today. You're, You're into anything, you know, as long as you sincerely believe you're a spiritual person. No, he means that as we saw last week, whether you have the Holy Spirit in you and whether, like Galatians 5 explains, whether you are keeping in step with the Spirit, whether you are living according to the Spirit and manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 14, 37, if anyone thinks he is spiritual, again, he's addressing people who who thought of themselves on one level, but their level of discernment, their level of dealing with each other showed a different picture. Uh, Galatians 6, 1, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. He's describing a measure of spiritual maturity that is seen in how we respond to a brother or a sister who is caught up in some sin. Do we harshly condemn them? Or do we, in the name of grace, do we just wave, it's all okay, doesn't matter? Or do we come to them in a way that speaks the truth and love, that comes with, with love and gra- or with, with grace and the law in order to help them find their way back to Christ? Paul's terms of spiritual maturity also include the word mature. I mean, that's a word that's repeated frequently, 1 Corinthians 2, 6, among the mature. Philippians 3.15 is is an interesting one to me, even as we come up upon Easter Sunday. Paul there says, you know what my desire is? My desire is to know Christ, to know the power of the resurrection of Christ, even to share in the sufferings of Christ. And he concludes, let those of us who are mature think that way. You know, does that reality of knowing Christ increasingly, of, of, of being more and more aware of the resurrection power of Christ, of, of even being willing to give ourselves sacrificially to Christ, does that characterize our lives? That's a measure of maturity in Paul's uh, words. Colossians 1.28, his goal, he explains, in, in preaching the gospel and teaching people the Bible, is that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That, that's, that's the goal of, of teaching. Is that the goal in your relationships? Is that the goal in your marriage that you would present at, at the end of time? You would present your spouse mature in Christ because of the way you have ministered to him or her? Is that the goal in your friendships? Hebrews. Uh, I I realize we don't know for sure who the author of Hebrews is. I I think Paul is a likely candidate. Hebrews 5.14. Here's a description of mature. Solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment, there's a measure of maturity, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil, to know what truth is in this society that says there is no truth to be able to distinguish what is true and and what is good and what is evil. That's what Paul wraps up in the concept of maturity. By the way, Paul teaches not only about maturity, he has images of spiritual immaturity as well. Uh, In our text today, 1 Corinthians 3.1, we're going to see he speaks about what it means to be an infant, a baby in Christ. 1 Corinthians 14.20 
He speaks about how we can be spiritually children in the way that we think about things. And, and Peter, I realize this is Peter, not Paul, but 1 Peter 2.2, 2, he, he speaks about as newborn babes, we are to long for pure spiritual milk that by it we may grow up in our salvation. He speaks about maturity. The, the apostles speak about maturity. They speak about immaturity. As you think about where you are, as you think about your spiritual growth, here is the reality. If you know Christ as Savior and Lord, the reality is that you and I alike, we have all begun our spiritual lives, our Christian lives, as spiritual infants. And that's really what I think Paul is describing in our text today in verse 1 and the first half of verse 2, when he writes, brothers, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you milk, not solid food, because you were not able to receive it. I don't think those are words of criticism or condemnation. I think he's going back to his initial 18 months there in Corinth. He comes to Corinth, and and all he has is a bunch of pagans. None of them know Christ yet. He shares the gospel, and the Holy Spirit works, and, 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 and many of these men and women begin to respond to the gospel, embrace Christ as Savior and Lord. And and as they do, they, they become spiritually reborn. They're newborn Christians, just like you and I at one point were a newborn Christian. And what is Paul saying in verse 1 and first part of verse 2 as he's reflecting back on, on that initial 18 months that he was in Corinth? He's saying it's normal, it's expected at that point that you're only infants in Christ. In fact, he says, that's why I fed you spiritual milk not solid food. You weren't ready for, you weren't able to receive spiritual milk. Some of you are parents of young children, and it's been a number of years for me, but, but uh, the experience particularly of my oldest son when he was an infant stands out to me. He had, he had the, the gift of projectile vomiting. He had, he had issues keeping the milk down, keeping the formula down. We tried all kinds of mixtures to be able to get him to keep it in his system so he'd grow. And, and as he was able to keep that milk in, then, then we, like, you know, this, you, I'm sure you know this experience if you've been parents, you eventually, you try and mix in cereal with the milk, so your child is taking in something even more substantial. And, and then you progress them on from, from milk with cereal mixed into it to cereal itself, so there's more and more uh, solid food going into their system, and from, from cereal to, to softer foods, uh, fruits and vegetables, and eventually to solid foods. Now, does that mean in any way that that, that, that milk, that formula is somehow inferior to, to you know, the, the more solid foods that you give your child as they progress to that point? No, it's all got nutrients. It's, it's all the protein that they need. You are simply giving it to them in the form that they can receive it at that point in their maturity. That's the illustration. That's the analogy that Paul is, is making here. His, his, not, his analogy is not about milk as, as something inferior, as milk like being spiritual cotton candy. Oh, it's just fluff. And solid food being somehow deep truth. No, he says both the milk and the, the solid foods, they are the message of the cross. They are Christ crucified. They are the gospel. It's just the form in which I give it to you. 
And he's saying, at that time, when, when you were newborn believers, I gave you the gospel in a form that you could receive it. I gave it to you as spiritual milk. I want you to hear that. I, I, milk sometimes is misinterpreted here to get a bad connotation, but the gospel of, the Jesus, of Jesus Christ is both milk and solid food. As milk, the gospel is the simple truth of how Jesus saves us from our sins in his perfect righteousness as we turn to him in Savior and Lord in repentance and faith. We all needed that milk. We all still need that milk. You know, we don't give up drinking milk, do we, as we we go through life. That's especially what we need to hear as we're coming to Christ. That's especially what we need to hear and be reminded of as we're new believers beginning to grow in Christ. But, but the gospel is also solid food. As solid food, the gospel is that glorious truth that, that our salvation goes on to transform every aspect of our lives. As solid food, it's the, the gospel is that truth that eternity is open to us and, and, and our, changes our perspective, of, our perspective to an increasingly eternal perspective. So he's describing the reality in Corinth that's the reality in your and my life and, and in our church. When we first come to Christ, we need the simplicity of the milk of the gospel because we're not yet able to receive the solid food, the solid food of how the gospel really calls us to follow Christ as Lord, the solid food of how the gospel calls us to surrender everything to Christ, the solid food of how of the gospel of how it seeks to transform every area of our lives into the image of Christ. So I want you to see in verse 1, in the first part of verse 2 here, Paul is not speaking critically of them yet. He's going to get there in the second part of verse 2. This is what he expected, he said. This is the way that, that normal Christian growth occurs. But here's the deal. I expected my, my infant sons to grow in their ability to take in food. I, I expected them to be able to, over time, to progress from being able to receive just milk, just formula, to the increasingly more solid food. And in fact, if, if, they had, if they had grown chronologically, if their age had increased month after month after month, year into year after year, and all they were still able to take in is milk, there would have been a huge problem. They would have been, they would have been stunted in their growth. I don't even know if they would have survived if, if, uh, I don't know if, I, if, I, if it's possible for a human being to survive on just that kind of diet. And so there is an expectation that even though we give milk to an infant, we give spiritual milk to a newborn believer, that growth occurs and they are expected to grow and progress to, the, to be able to handle more and more solid food. And that's what Paul says didn't happen or isn't happening at the end of verse 2. He's now reflecting back, before I get there, he's now reflecting back. He, he's, he was there the first 18 months, and then he left, and Apollos was there. There may have been other pastors and teachers there. It's several years later. They've been believers maybe, maybe five years or more by this point. And what does he say that he hears? In fact, you are still not able to receive solid food. In other words, 
even though they have been Christians for a number of years now, they've had ample opportunity and time to grow spiritually and mature as Christians, they've somehow failed to do so. They, they, they have rejected solid food. We don't know. We don't have all the detail. Maybe, maybe it's, you know, they liked more the show of, of the teaching. And yeah, give us the simple gospel, but, you know, flavor it. Make it, make it, make it palatable to us. We, we're not really sure, but what we do know is from what we're hearing, what he was hearing, that the Corinthians had no taste for the solid food of how the crucified Christ calls us to crucify ourselves as we follow him. They had no taste for the solid food of, of how the gospel calls us to crucify our pride, our desires, and our agendas. And even though that's the truth that they should have been embracing by then, Paul says, even at this point, now years later, you're still not able to receive it. Now, here's where it, it goes beyond just being historical. This is, this is, frankly, honestly, this is the state of many of us as believers. This may be the state of many churches, that, that though a simple gospel has been preached and received, and that is all wonderful, and that is all expected. As time goes on, whether we look at ourselves individually or, or we look at ourselves collectively as a church, there's not been progression on into the deeper things of the gospel, the solid meat of how the gospel actually changes our lives and calls us to crucify ourselves as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So this speaks to us even perhaps more loudly than it speaks to the Corinthians. Why, I guess is the question, why are they at this point still not, years later, able to receive the solid food of the gospel? Well, I think we see that in the first part of verse 3. In fact, you are still not able because you are still fleshly. Maybe you have the King James Version uh, or the New King James Version, because you are still carnal. That's the concept that, that I heard a lot growing up, the, the whole concept of, of being a carnal Christian. I, I think the better translation is, is fleshly, but it really has the same meaning. This is another term of spiritual maturity, by the way, or immaturity that, that Paul uses, and we see it in Romans, but we see it clearly, perhaps most clearly here in 1 Corinthians 3. Look at how it shows up in verse 1 and verse 3. In verse 1, he speaks of them being people of the flesh back at the point of their, of their conversion. And now in verse 3, he speaks of them years later as being still fleshly. It's the same word, but there's slight variations on it, and he's really talking about two slightly different situations. In verse 1, he says, as you are a new believer, as you are a, a newborn in Christ, there's a, there's a certain expectation that you are still going to be somewhat a person of the flesh. In other words, those, those motivating desires, those fallen human desires that really ruled your life before you became a Christian— they're still there, especially, and they're especially visible when you first came to Christ. You would have not wanted to know me my first five, maybe ten years as a Christian because of how the flesh manifested itself still in me. But verse 3, same word, but different condition. Verse 3 describes where believers are, where they should be years later, and what does he say about them? You are still fleshly. 
He's describing what it is to be a Christian for several years or more, to be a long-time Christian, and and yet to still be motivated by our our sinful human desires. We have the Holy Spirit in us, he's, he's describing, but somehow we are not allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us and to control us. We're still motivated by the very controlling, same controlling sinful desires that motivated us in our non-Christian life and even in our early Christian life. Now, the reality is, brothers and sisters, that, that there is a struggle going on in us. No matter whether you've been a Christian for one day or for many, many years, there's a struggle between the flesh and the Spirit. Paul describes it well in Galatians 5, 17, and he's speaking about believers here. He's speaking about you and me. The flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the spirit, what is contrary to the flesh, they are in conflict with each other. Here's the reality. If you know Christ as Savior and Lord, the Holy Spirit lives in you. The Holy Spirit is there to to animate and empower you and transform you. But guess what? The flesh, what motivated and and controlled you prior to coming to Christ is, is not gone yet. And it is, and it is especially present at the beginning of our Christian lives. And so there's this struggle going on between what the Spirit wants to move us towards and how the flesh wants to hold us back and keep us trapped in the old patterns of behavior that so motivated us before we came to Christ. What does it look like when the flesh is winning? What does it look like when, you know, we're listening more to the flesh and we're following the flesh and we're still fleshly even years into our Christian life? Paul describes that in Galatians 5, 19 and 20 as you see the, the visible evidence, the works of the flesh. And this isn't a complete list here, but 5.19, now the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, And those may be some of the ones that may manifest themselves in a believer, but think of these next ones and how they relate to what the Corinthians were struggling with. The works of the flesh include strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. Do those ring a bell? They should if you've been here for a few weeks of our study because those are the very kinds of visible manifestations of what was going on relationally in the Corinthian church that Paul touches on from chapter 1 on. And, and, and what is it here in chapter 3 that Paul points to as the evidence that they are still fleshly? Uh, again, look at verses 3 and 4. There is envy and strife among you. And since there is, are you not fleshly? Are you not living like ordinary people, like like people who don't have the Spirit of God in them at all? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, in other words, evidence of factionalism, evidence of divisions in the body, are you not mere men? Are you not behaving like a man or a woman who has not been converted, who does not have the Holy Spirit? What is he describing here? Years into their spiritual growth, the Corinthians were spiritually stunted because they were stuck in fleshly patterns of behavior characterized by envy, by by jealousy, by strife, by divisions, by factions. And what is he saying? You think of yourselves as spiritually mature. This is the evidence of your spiritual immaturity. And again, that hits me. And I hope by the Holy Spirit it hits you. 
Maybe it's, maybe it's the, the sexual works of the flesh that you struggle with, and if to the extent that they're dominant in your life, even if you do a pretty good job of keeping them hidden, that's evidence of spiritual immaturity. But think of these ones that the Corinthians struggle with. Think of these ones that are so common in, in our marriages, in our families, in our friendships, and in our church. These ones that manifest themselves in various forms of anger, of, of rivalries, to the extent that they exist in, in me, in my marriage, in my friendships, in my church relationships. They show I have real deficits in my spiritual maturity, not that I'm spiritually mature. What can we learn about your and my process of spiritually maturing from this, Uh, especially when we think of this concept of, of we can have the Spirit in us, changing us, transforming us, and yet there can still be this wrestling with, with carnal behavior, with fleshly behavior. Sam Storms, a, uh, a current theologian and pastor, has really helped me think about this. And I don't quote often from, from theologians here, but I want to put a few lines of his up on the, the screen just because it's been helpful for me to bring it all together, and I hope it helps bring it all together for you. Sam Storms writes that what he calls carnality. He's using the King James version of that word. I would say the state of being fleshly. The state of being fleshly, although ideally a condition to be found only in the newly saved, is such that it may raise its ugly head at any and every stage of the Christian life. Did you get that? You may be a Christian 10, 20, 30, 40, or more years and, and this, 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 this pull of the flesh, this, this rising up of carnality is something that you and I will still wrestle with, that we have to be on guard against. It's something that doesn't go away. And it's something that if we allow it to run un- uncontrolled and we pay no attention to it or we explain it or rationalize it in a way, it, it will sink us in an abyss of carnality. Storms goes on. Carnality and spirituality, rather than being categories or classes into into which one enters in the Christian life, are characteristics or moral tendencies which one manifests in varying degree throughout the course of the Christian life. There was a point in my spiritual development where where I I was taught that, you know, there's the unbeliever and, and there's the spiritual believer, but there's this middle ground. You can be a carnal Christian. You can be a carnal believer. And, and you're saved, I was taught. You know, you've embraced Christ as Savior and Lord, but you're living just like you're an unbeliever. I agree with storms. I don't think there's any state like that. I think the person who, who, who thinks that they can go through life as a carnal Christian, as, as a fleshly Christian, is self-deceived about their conversion, whether they are really converted. I think that what this describes, as we see in, in 1 Corinthians 3 here, is like he says, a spiritual characteristic or a moral tendency which manifests itself in our lives to one degree or another throughout our Christian life. He goes on, the ideal as set forth in Scripture is, of course, a progression that is always upward, away from carnality, away from fleshly behavior, towards spiritual behavior, away from manifestations of carnality and toward manifestations of maturity. Let me ask you this morning, in the privacy of your own heart and your own mind, 
what are the manifestations of fleshly, of carnal behavior that right now you are struggling with in your life? Maybe until this morning you've really not been willing to courageously recognize them and name them in your own life. What are the manifestations of fleshly behavior that, that are in your relationships, in your marriage, in, in your family, in your relationships with your parents or your kids? And what are the manifestations of fleshly behavior that right now are, are manifesting themselves in your church relationships, your relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ? How much do we look like the Corinthians? How easy is it for us to say about some area of fleshly behavior, you know, oh, that's just dad. That's just dad. You you just got to accept that in dad, you know, or you put a name on it. That's just Joe. That's just Susan. You know, we just got to accept that that's the way that they are. How much do we normalize carnal behavior rather than recognizing it for what it is? It's a sign of spiritual immaturity. It's a sign that they are still in the flesh. We have to be willing to recognize fleshly carnal behavior for what it is in our lives, what it is in our relationships, what it is in our church. Do we think of ourselves as spiritually mature? Do we think that because we've been in church for for any number of years that that somehow we've reached this state, that, that we are somewhat mature, at least acceptably mature? We need to be willing to admit that there are deficits in our maturity and that if we do not address those deficits in our maturity, they hold us back from spiritual maturing. They hold our church back, our marriages back, our families back, our relations back from spiritually maturing. Last quote from Sam Storms. Carnality, fleshly behavior in the Christian whenever and in whatever way it manifests itself, is a temporary condition. Thank God. There is no basis in Scripture for the teaching that genuinely born again and justified Christians can persist without great discomfort in their sin due to the promptings of the Holy Spirit or the chastisement of the Father, such as lead to repentance. I am so thankful that the Father does not want to let us rest in our fleshly behavior. Someone I I love asked me recently, you know, why is it that this sin that you're telling me that I got to deal with in my life, I don't feel guilty about it at all. I don't think about it at all unless you bring it up. Why is it that I don't feel guilty about it? And I had to direct him to really the truth of this is, is that's an issue, that you don't feel guilty about it, that you have become, you've become cauterized to some extent, you become, uh, you become hardened to some extent by it, but because the Lord loves you, He won't leave you there. And He will press in on you, and He will convict you, and He may even chastise you. He may even lovingly bring discipline into your life, not to punish you, The punishment's been paid for at the cross, but to bring you to the place where you see you need to turn back to him in repentance. How is the Holy Spirit prompting you this morning to repent from the patterns of fleshly behavior that maybe even right now he's bringing to your mind? These patterns of fleshly behavior, they hold us back in our spiritual maturity. They hold us back in our marriages. They hold us back in our family relationships. They hold us back in 
and, and becoming the church that the Lord Jesus wants us to be. How is the Holy Spirit calling you to repent this morning? Here's what repentance looks like, and I, I will close with this. Galatians 5:24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And that is not just a one-time thing that happens when we become saved. That is an ongoing thing that as the Holy Spirit makes us aware of the passions and desires coming up out of the flesh that have, uh, that have an influence in our lives that they should not have, the Holy Spirit calls us to crucify them as our, our Savior and Lord was crucified. What are those this morning for you? Because crucifying begins with acknowledging those patterns of behavior that we're stuck in and confessing them. Confessing them first to the Lord, maybe confessing them to others. Crucifying the flesh also means taking steps to, to uh, genuinely repent. Maybe, maybe that's making ourselves accountable to someone. I, I struggle, we might say, with someone. I struggle with anger. I struggle with bitterness. Will you hold me accountable? Will you help me prayerfully and, and, and through Scripture? Will you help me work through this and walk the road of repentance? Crucifying the flesh means reconciling the relationships that we've damaged by our fleshly behavior, going and asking for forgiveness, extending forgiveness, making true biblical confession, extending true biblical forgiveness, seeking to reconcile where relational bridges have been burned. How is Christ leading you to crucify your flesh this morning? The good news of the gospel is he doesn't look at you. He doesn't look at me as we wrestle with the flesh, with, with condemnation. He, he looks at us with hope. He looks at us with love. He wants to take us beyond the place where we're stuck. He wants to move us on into greater maturity, that we may experience him more fully, that we may experience the power of his resurrection, that we may experience the fullness of our salvation and all that eternity promises to us. He does it by moving us on from crucifying the flesh into maturity. How is the Holy Spirit wanting to do that in you this morning? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we come to you now with no condemnation through Jesus Christ, that even where we see deficits in our life, even where we see that the flesh is winning in the struggle in some areas of our lives, with the Spirit. You, you stand with open arms. And uh, just like prodigals coming back to the Father, Lord, you, you rejoice when we turn to you. We, we see the, the areas of the pig pen that we have been living in, and we come back to you. Um, Lord, you rejoice. And we thank you, Lord, that we don't even do this in our own power. Repentance isn't possible in my own power or by my willpower. You, by your Holy Spirit, give us the ability to repent. You give us the desire to repent. You give us the willingness to, to take the steps of repentance. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would do uh, the work this morning that I have no human ability to do, that you would probe each person's heart here this morning, including mine. You would show the areas of the flesh where we're stuck. You would move us to crucify the flesh and you would move us on to spiritual maturity. 
Lord, for your glory to be seen in our lives and in our marriages, in our families, in our friendships, and in our church. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.